Handy History Teaching Tips, blogs in a conversational style. Handy History Teaching Tips are conversational podcasts designed to help history teachers with tips, examples and ideas about history teaching. Sally Thorne, that's me, is a head of department and senior examiner. Helen Snelson was a head of department and now trains history teachers. Between us, we have more years classroom history teaching experience than we are going to admit here. Both of us regularly write resources and present at conferences. We are proudly history specific and practical in our approach. Our hope is that this podcast will become something of a problem page for history teachers. Think of Helen and I as your agony aunts. If you're wrestling with something particularly tricky and need some help, drop us an email at handyhistoryteachingtips at gmail.com or tweet us. I'm at Mrs Thorne and Helen is at Snelson H. And we will see what we can cook up between us. This episode is part of a series explaining the meaning and scope of the disciplinary concepts in school history. And this episode is all about causation. Yeah, it seems sensible to start with possibly our core second order concept in history, I think. It is the one that seems most popular still, isn't it, in school history? Yeah, and it's often paired with consequence, but we're going to be talking about these two concepts separately because I think otherwise this podcast would go on for hours. Um, So I tend to think of causation as what caused X, um, whereas consequence is more what X caused. So if I was to use an English Civil War example, you might split that into why did the Civil War break out and how did the Civil War affect the country as, as the consequence second bit? Yeah, and and let's stick right up front there that it it might be worth noting immediately. As we mentioned in our last episode, scholarship has has moved on in this area. And we recognise it's probably better, don't we, to talk about the English civil wars in the context of change across all parts of the British Isles in the 17th century. Um, But yeah, taking an example, um, a key thing here, and it might seem really obvious, is to make sure that you're not considering the causes of something after it has taken place. So if you want to include the execution of Charles I in your civil war study, you can't use that, why did the civil war break out, inquiry question, because the execution happened right at the end. In fact, after the civil war, the the fighting part of the civil war was over. So therefore, the question is going to need tweaking, isn't it, to make sure it covers all of the content you want your students to know which is why a more popular inquiry question for this topic might be, why was Charles I executed in 1649? That would take everything in, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think it, that's that's why it's absolutely vital to make sure that you start with the content you want your students to cover before developing the question. Um, and causation is, it's our bread and butter. So as such, it's, it's really common to see inquiry questions where a why has just been wedged in at the beginning, where it isn't really needed. Um, and, and I think that's how we end up with inquiry questions such as why did William win the Battle of Hastings? And I used to teach that. I, you know, um, I like no judgment. It's a cracking story. But does it really matter why he won? Is that really important? Yeah, no, I, I likewise used to teach it for years. And now I think, no, possibly not really. Understanding the reasons for his victory doesn't really help us, does it, to understand much at all about the wider history of the period. And particularly as we are trying our very best to build coherent history curriculum sometimes with just two years at key stage three the important thing here is that he he won um yeah yeah, and you can say that in as many words without having to do a whole sequence on the circumstances leading to to that victory 
yeah absolutely but like I said you know and and as you know it's a good story isn't it and it's not one that you're going to want to miss telling in the classroom you know the story of the Battle of Hastings you know you get that whole thing in about the hill and the the arrow and the the Bretons like oh it's a tapestry yeah yeah um and you could argue that knowing about the battle is is important for the next bit of the story um so that students can understand you know they need to understand that it was quite a close run thing because that helps to explain the steps William took to extend his control you know over the English population yeah but I think you wanted that something there it would be much more straightforward to teach this as a how or what what happened at the Battle of Hastings as yeah. part of a, a much bigger broader inquiry um, so if you wanted to keep a causation focus for this topic then you could look at why was William crowned King of England in 1066 um, which happened yeah. on Christmas Day making yeah. the story of his coronation an ideal topic for a Christmas lesson yeah absolutely I've had some my students planning the Christmas coronation of William at <laughs> the um, Christmas lesson before. Um, so, or, or you could, you know, there's there's this shift now as it's quite fashionable to think about the consequences of William's victory. So if you wanted to look at the battle, then you could consider it as part of a broader inquiry constructed around the Sharma quote about Norman victory leading to the English becoming an underclass in their own country. You know, what kind of caused that, yeah. Yeah, and it's perfectly valid, isn't it, to consider the features of a historical period or an event without having an underlying focus on a why, especially if this consideration builds up to a to a broader inquiry question. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that that kind of my top tip for starting with causation questions is don't fall into the trap of bolting a why on the sort of onto the front of a question and thinking that that makes it causation, because if you really mean how or what then you're just going to end up with a much more complicated question that doesn't necessarily have the focus that you wanted in the first place. Yeah, no good tip. So my second tip is going to be to pay attention to helping students to scaffold their thinking by giving them phrases they can talk and then subsequently write with. Um, because kids tend to put causes in a list or um, like the idea of first and second um, or just put them in a big pile and actually if you give them some good phrases that takes them straight away from one thing and another thing that list of causes and gets them to think about connections and I don't think there's much point in doing causes unless you're not really thinking about the individual causes so much as how they interplay for example this links to that would be a good phrase to give them at yeah. the same time I think sometimes we can be uh, um, it's quite interesting in stories how things are happening at coming together as causes that gets them to think about connections um, the primary cause at this point in time I do like locating my cause thinking in time and space and you know the really great thinking on this is being done by um, Jim Carroll in relation to historical literacy in general and he's done some specific work on causation I really recommend anybody to look at his blog posts on his um, website which is uh, jcarrollhistory.com jcarroll two r's uh, two l's history.com and he's uh, even put some suggested phrases for causation on there so really useful place to go yeah and I, I think that's when like upskilling them to be able to talk about this rather than just saying another cause another reason another reason it's just you know that that can be really really powerful 
Um, and and in a way, then you, you're kind of it's it's nuanced already in that, you know, the not all causes are equal, but they all link together. Um, so, you, you know, in the first episode of this series, I was talking about um, the different ways that you can slice causation. So, you you know, you've got long term and short term and trigger um, and then thinking about the, the different roles of of causes, the different roles that they played. So um, within a within a story um, and putting them into categories as well. So economic, social, religious, um, that that kind of categorization. And, and I know in debates in history, Arthur Chapman has also talked about enabling causes and determining causes. And just being able to express to students that actually these these all coexist, um, but actually we can categorize them. We can, you know, we can create a, a way of of splitting them up and looking at them separately, I think, you know, is is a real skill that's important to teach when you do causation questions. Yeah, I, absolutely. And that that's what historians do with causes, isn't it? They they chop them up and link them around and slice them up and, and look at the way they're they're interplaying. And so that's that's why I think we're saying that linking of causes from the very start is is so important to your practice and doesn't really have to be over complex on the resource production. I mean, I actually adore a good complicated card sort, but um even if it's not complicated on the resource production, it should lead students to realise that causes are complex that actually events and things are caused usually in quite a complex way um, and I, I wouldn't want to rush that process of really sort of spending time with the links between causes to try and get to an answer because uh, yeah just a bit glib really. I remember Katie Hall developed a fantastic simple A4 sheet with the causes of World War One in boxes scattered across the page. It wasn't resource intensive but it could be used on so many levels because the kids could colour code the different boxes for different categories. They could draw lines between them to show causes that linked um, and then they could write their thinking above the lines. Um, and it gave you as the teacher a chance to just sort of literally put everything on one page and, and tell the overarching story again so that the story and the chronology and the people would drive the thinking. And, and I think they really should drive any conversations we're having with kid about causation. You know, I'm I'm really not a fan of of models like Diamond Nines and, and other go to things like that, because just too often I see them getting used as an end in themselves. They they quickly become a task to achieve. Um, and I've seen kids sort of get so busy in sort of trying to set up their beautiful diamond nine that they forget that what they're doing is actually supposed to be having really in-depth conversations about uh, how things connect, the complex causation, whether it's this way or that way. And it, yeah, don't don't rush to a glib model. That's definitely my view on things. What's your yeah. sense on that? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, I think as soon as you start to say to, to kids, right, OK, you must have one cause at the top that's the most important and you have to have three in the middle and they're the, the oh. middle. Cord. I just think, you know, you're, you're pegging them into something that into a shape that just doesn't work. You know, history is really messy. And I think about um, I read a really good article um on the BBC website a few years ago about um, it was different military historians and and which country they felt was most to blame for the First World War. And, you know, a couple of historians are able to choose one country, but some historians chose five. You know, they just they, <laughs> yeah. they can't they can't narrow it down to just one. So I think, yeah. you know, then, then when we're asking students to narrow it down to one, then we I think we we run the risk of saying, well, actually, this is really simple. And it's just not. 
Um, So I also love a good card sort. But what I tend to do with mine, I mean, they are a pain to cut out, but I tend to use hexagons um, with with my students because they just there's just some something about the shape of them that they just fit together really nicely. And they fit together in lots of different ways. And you can make a chain, you can make a pattern, you can kind of link things together. Um, And so that's what I tend to use when I'm getting them to sort out their 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 causes, really. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. So well, then what for your, some of your causation inquiry questions then, Sal? OK, well, I think my very favourite um, inquiry question that I've been teaching since my very first year as a teacher is why did men stand and fight in the First World War? Um, and I'm not sure where it came from because it predated me in the department, though I always assumed um, my old, I should give a little shout out to my old head of department, Ian Browning, because I think it was probably his question. Um, so what I really like about this question is um, that it provides a more social aspect to the history of World War One, and it's helped us to hit quite a lot of different curricular goals um, over the years that we've been teaching it and developing it. Oh, go on, tell me more. That sounds gorgeous. Oh, it's so much fun. So the very first lesson, um, we look at the conditions for the soldiers so that we set up that problem in the first instance. And, I, you know, this is I, like I think the accepted wisdom about causation is to start with teaching the students about the event that so that they, then they kind of track back from that and think about the causes. So we say, you know, look, this was absolutely awful. The conditions in World War One were terrible and yet millions of people volunteered to go. So what on earth encouraged them to do that? So then we look at the causes of World War One um, in, in a fairly brief way to consider how people were drawn into the fighting in the first place. Um, and then we look at the propaganda of the time, which is an excellent way to include some sources. And, you know, kind of well, this is another cause of, of people joining the, the army is because they were encouraged by the by the posts, by the propaganda. Um, and uh, we used to tie this into a homework where students Uh, went to their local war memorial to find the name of a fallen soldier from the area and then they researched them on the Commonwealth War Graves website to find out something about where they died. Um, So that usually opened up conversations about when more soldiers were needed um, during the First World War, for example in 1916, and helped provide a way into um, conscription and thinking about you know that being a, a, a way a reason why people were there oh brilliant but also brings in some local some very personal some some local environment historic environment work too yeah yeah and it kind of really helps to show why those war memorials um in every town and village are there you know i where i used to teach in westbury we had the westbury war memorial but each one of the outlet like dilton and um bratton they had their own war memorials as well so you know it it kind of really brings home to you actually this this did affect every part of the country Um, and then more recently I've expanded the lessons to include soldiers from the wider British Empire so why did Indian people fight in the First World War for example and you know my next stage with this is to read Ola Shoga's book on World War One because I'm sure it's going to give me loads more scope to add things in yeah oh it will it's brilliant yeah you'll love it (laughs) it's absolutely fantastic (laughs) Um, that's another great tip as well. If you can draw your causation questions out of wider scholarship on the topic, then, as we said in our first episode of this series, you really have got a curriculum that that reflects the debates that historians are are having. Um, so, I mean, in relation to the, the causes of, of World War One, um, I think though, I think just to pick up what you were saying, Sally. You, you wouldn't want to just dive straight into the causes without giving them any idea what World War One is. Otherwise, they don't know 
what's coming and that's a bit yes. weird um but a lot of scholarship recently has been relating to the to the july crisis emphasizing the um the, the last period if you like after the shots were fired in sarajevo and the actions that were taken um albeit within a context of course um and some people have picked up the work of uh, of, of sleepwalkers uh, i have to say controversially i prefer margaret mcmillan's book the war that ended peace but um uh, but there we go um and uh looking at the idea that that also there were there were stages of this war getting out of hand. So I know that I, I changed to a question, why did the world go to war in 1914? Mm -hmm. um, because for me, again, that encompassed a lot because I, I got to a point where I realised that actually trying to work out why Serbia and Austria go to war is a slightly different thing than working, wondering why Britain joins in. Yeah. If you like, why, why a regional conflict? Because regional conflicts go all, on all the time, it escalates out of control. And that's where I wanted to put my focus. But then also it gave me that chance to, to, to bring in the empire because you've got that lovely world, world in there. Well, in fact, pretty much as soon as France and, and Britain particularly are in there, you've immediately got a world situation. And although other countries obviously join on their own account and some of them join much later after 1914, you have got a world war um, in 1914 because of other countries joining, but also because of the colonial aspect. Um, yeah. So I think that's really important. But another completely different example away from um, World War One in relation to scholarship would be to do something like take the work of Thomas Penn on Winter King, which I know has been a popular book with lots of history teachers. And to look at something like why didn't Henry Tudor feel secure on his throne until 1499 would give you a, a lovely uh, inquiry, which would then set up the work you do on Henry VIII, I think, much more strongly, because um, you'd immediately have some understanding of the the insecurities of, of the Tudor dynasty and the, where they felt confident. And, you know, a lot of that rubs off on Henry. Um, you know, one of the reasons Henry Tudor feels so secure by 1499 is having two boys. Um, yeah. yeah. I know he doesn't keep two for very long, but 1499 <laughs> being the key year. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so. And I suppose the, you can also put in there that, you know, with Henry VIII, he he therefore, how old is he in 1499? He must be eight. Oh, he's oh, no, yeah. no, he's, he's tired. Oh, yeah. You know, you're right. Yes, he must be eight, mustn't he? Yeah. So he probably then doesn't remember a time yeah. of, of, of real insecurity because there's security in his life really from from a very early age from when he's fairly young so therefore I think then that yeah that helps to explain why he yeah that's a good point I mean Starkey goes on doesn't he about how he's brought up with the sort of lovely family life of his mum and the girls in court and then that all does fall apart because um yes yeah first first of all he gets bumped up to be the heir but then his then his mum dies as well so he's also got that experience of it suddenly going wrong again hasn't he yeah yeah interesting. yeah yeah we've gone off on one there yeah. where are we going where are we, where are we going to finish in there we're still recording these in time of lockdown so i think we're still up with our uh our positive points aren't you what's your well-being tip this week sal oh well so i've been really enjoying looking at the histfest lectures on youtube so uh, the histfest was supposed to happen um in april in london and obviously it's been postponed it's rescheduled to happen in september now so i'm really hoping that it will go ahead although who knows um so what they've done is they've released um kind of taster lectures on their youtube channel and i've really i've been really enjoying watching those and like helpful to keep my hand in with the history community yeah, actually, um, I, I'm going to say similar, something similar, you know, because the um, HA's uh, 
launched a thing called Virtual Branches, which is actually for the for the main membership, because we all sometimes forget that it's not just history teachers that make up the HA. But the Virtual <laughs> Branches is great because actually as a history teacher, I often don't get round to, you know, seven o'clock at night going out in the dark and the cold in January to hear a history lecture at my local branch. But now I can just key in online. And I sat the other night very chirpily with um, somebody who actually used to be my tutor when I was at university, oh, wow. um, watching him tell me about Henry VIII, sort of thinking, oh, <laughs> yeah, it, was, <laughs> it was lovely. I felt sort of safe and warm and <laughs> yeah, oh, wow. I was indulging my uh, indulging my history love as well. So. <laughs> anyway, good to talk to you again, Sally. Yeah. I hope that's Thank useful you. on causation, folks, and uh, see you next time. Yeah, take care.